Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. Thanks again for making this one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you enjoy what we do, please like, comment, and share in your favorite podcast app, and we'll keep sharing great conversations like the one we have planned for today. I'm host Dan Turchin, CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. I'm also an investor in and advisor to more than 30 AI-first startups, and as you know, a firm believer in the power of technology to make humans better. If you're passionate about changing the world with AI, or uh, maybe just looking for your next adventure, let's talk. Now, we learn each week from AI thought leaders on this show, and of course, the added bonus is you get one AI fun fact. Well, today's fun fact, the Knight Foundation researched how AI is changing journalism. In a recent report, uh, lead researcher John Keefe summarized results from analyzing 130 AI-related projects impacting journalism. His key takeaway? AI is used to augment reporting capacity 47% of the time and actually report the news only 3% of the time. The second most common use of AI in journalism is reducing variable costs, which include tasks like transcription and story tagging. Of the 130 projects, 27% used AI that way. Now, I find it a fascinating case study in just one industry that reveals the extent to AI is being used to augment, not replace humans. We'll link to the full research report in today's show notes. We've learned about this from hundreds of guests on the program in fields ranging from medicine to education to construction and even policymaking. My coaching to you listening, embrace automation to augment your intelligence. The bots are not coming to take your job. Now on to this week's conversation. WeWork founder and Jared Leto doppelganger Adam Newman was in the news again last week for having raised $350 million at a billion-dollar pre-money valuation from none other than Mark Andreessen, storied co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz. His controversial new company, Flow, aims to do for co-living what we work, what we work did for co-working. Think what you want about Newman and his escapade at WeWork, but uh, consider what the implications are for work and society if he and Flow are successful. As their home lives become more immersive, expect the role of the office to change. Communing with others as a source of social interaction may very well replace the last thing the workplace still provided. Kia Kokolicheva wrote about the story for Axios and has a few opinions about the topic. Kia is one of the most respected tech journalists, having spent the past five and a half years at Axios, which was recently acquired by Cox Enterprises. Before that, she wrote for Ford and VentureBeat after having received her BA in political science from Berkeley. Kia and Dan Primek are a dynamic duo responsible for providing the news and insights behind uh, many of the Valley's most memorable memes. She's active on Twitter at uh, I'm Kia, like the car, where her superpower, as far as I can tell, is getting her 19,000 followers to share scoops via DM. And uh, without further ado, Kia, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the show. Let's uh, let's get started by having you maybe share a little bit more about your background and uh, how you got into this space. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here. 
how I got into the space. Well, the funny thing is I've a real, I'm a real Silicon Valley girl. Uh, I moved to the San Jose area like 20 years ago when I was a teenager. Uh, my dad was, he's retired now, but he was in semiconductors. So I really grew up around tech at home and then for a lot of my life around me. And so the whole technology interest was pretty, pretty natural. It's obviously something I grew up with. And then, um, you know, I've always liked writing. I wrote for the student newspaper at the end of my college career. So the whole idea of putting writing and journalism together with tech while living in the Bay Area was sort of a no-brainer. Covered so many iconic stories in the Valley. What's your proudest moment as a journalist? Ooh, good question. I'd probably say, and this is so vain, but I would probably say that um, getting cited in a couple of books uh, was probably a top highlight. Um, I mean, you know, every day we write these stories and we don't really do it to be famous or anything, it's to do the job. But then when other expert journalists, you know, value our work and, you know, display it or lean on it in their own journalism, especially in things like books. It's pretty, um, it's a pretty fun moment. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this one. Axios went from covering the news to being the news recently. What's your perspective on the acquisition of Axios by Cox Enterprises on the future of tech journalism? Um, Obviously, it's a really exciting thing. I mean, we were a venture-backed startup. So like all venture-backed startups, you know, the mission is to build a great company, great products, grow, and then, you know, figure out a a way out eventually. Um, So it was pretty exciting to have that validation. It's also great news because our, you know, Cox is really committed to investing in us and giving us resources and even more sort of room and support to keep running towards all the goals that we've been setting for ourselves. And as we've been doing for the last five and a half, six years. So that's very exciting. And at the same time, it also kind of added another comp on the board for the industry, right? Like, We've had a lot of media startups and some have become public companies or been big acquisition targets, but a lot also haven't gotten anywhere or have had lackluster sort of outcomes. And so this is just like another data point on on the board of what can a company like this grow to be and be valued. So yeah, as a business journalist, (laughs) as a business journalist, that's kind of the other way I'm looking at it. It's an important comp on board. Content as an investment theme hasn't been popular for a while in the venture community. Did you, uh, you signed up with Dan at Axios a few years ago. Did you envision that there would be venture style returns from Axios? Well, when I joined, it hadn't hadn't launched yet, but they had raised $10 million in, the founders had raised $10 million in um, venture capital from pretty respected investors um, and they are second time media company founders. So, you know, I, I knew that I was signing up for a venture backed startup and I had a lot of trust in, in Dan for recruiting me because I respected him as a colleague, you know, at fortune. And even before that, when I was one of his readers um, and also just, you know, the political guys, they, um, 
I, I knew what Politico was and I knew what they built. So that was sort of another important data point in, you know, figuring out if this is a, a worthwhile ship to jump on. And to be fair, you're part of the reason why it uh, reached port. So nice work. <laughs> Thanks. I mean, that was the point, right? Like as an investor, you're trying to get your returns. As an employee, you're trying to pick the ship that's not going to sink. We, I want to record this one because I was intrigued by this news about Adam Newman and flow and the implications on the future of work, a topic that we cover every week here. And I enjoyed reading your story the day the news was uh, was was released. Here we are, just to the audience's benefit. We're recording this on September 1. Uh, this news was long, uh, released, I think, a week or so ago. Uh, maybe before I ask you some questions about your perspectives on it, just if you could summarize the story for us. What is what is flow and, and uh, you know, the, the, uh, your thoughts on Adam Newman's next act? Well, we don't know a lot yet, right? Like, it's still very stealthy. It's still pretty secretive. They haven't really come out and... Um talked about exactly what they're trying to do. What is out there is that Adam himself has been buying up properties in a few cities around the country. And this country, uh, this new company has acquired a lot of these properties. I'm not sure exactly what the details are, but that's part of the, the whole, um, the whole deal. And he wants to do something in, you know, revolutionizing the the renter experience for folks. And so this is what we know so far. And he was able to raise, obviously he was able to bankroll a lot of it himself for a while. And then he recently raised 350 million from Andreessen Horowitz with Mark Andreessen himself joining the board. So this is pretty much what we know so far. We'll have to see exactly what he intends to do to revolutionize the renter experience. So I posed that in the intro, that he's trying to reinvent housing, communal living, like he reinvented work. Is that a vision that you think he, or other competitors to flow like landing, for example, which all had a big, I think $125 million raise last week. Is that something the world needs? Is that, is that a vision that you think will ever come to fruition? So what's interesting is that WeWork tried to do something along those lines back in the day. It was called We Live. And you know, they sort of jumped on this like co-living trend, which is really funny because co-housing models have been around for a really long time in a lot of different formats. Um, so in and of itself is not a new idea. Um, but this sort of like, I know all these companies hated that description, but sort of like adult dorm concept was, you know, was, was very trendy a few years ago and we work through We Live, um, attempted to do that. It didn't really go so well. And, you know, folks are welcome to Google that and see some of the coverage. Um, but we've actually seen a first attempt by Adam to do this. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if this new company sort of takes some lessons from that whole experience in terms of believing that renters want to have community with their neighbors and want to interact with them and that there can be a lot of resource sharing that can be had within buildings or groups of buildings or anything like that. So I, we've seen a little glimpse of what he's probably thinking. So Adam's superpower is clearly fundraising. And there's yeah. that great scene in the first episode of We Crashed where he's pitching essentially flow 
And uh, you know, one of the students in the audience says, so let me get this straight. This is basically apartment living or dorm living, only we have to clean the bathrooms. Um, and now from, his, from Adam's perspective, we know he was Israeli, he grew up on a kibbutz. And for him, communal, he was raised by the community. And so he's got an, an attachment and a, you know, a pattern that he's trying to emulate. But communes are, you know, societal patterns, you know, community living, it's been tried before. And you know, is there a reason why the rest of the world doesn't live on kibbutzes like they do in Israel? I mean, I think a lot of it is cultural, right? Like you, you go to different parts of the world and people live in very, very different ways. And for a number of reasons in the U.S., we have developed our own sort of uh, values and norms, um, you know, huge emphasis on the nuclear family and single family homes and home ownership. You know, even in dense cities, people have long, you know, known their neighbors, especially if they live in a place for many, many years um, and their neighbors do as well. But at the same time, right, like they're still just their neighbors and, and there's still sort of a um, boundaries um, in terms of households. So, yeah, I think just generally in the American culture of how we live. Um, this doesn't really, this isn't the norm in adulthood. So we're all thinking about the future workplace. And certainly on this show, we think about it every week. And one of the themes that comes up from a lot of the experts that we talk about is the changing nature of the needs that your work community fulfills for you. And it used to be that when you spent a higher percentage of your time at work, a lot of your social needs were met there. You know, there were certain expectations about, you know, how close you were with your colleagues. And we're now shifting to what we've called on this show, a work net from a workforce. And a career might be stitched together from a combination of gig work and projects and Maybe I get to go be my best self at three or four companies simultaneously and only do the thing that I love doing most, but do it for multiple employers. And if that's the case, the role of the traditional office goes away. And maybe the place that I live ends up being the center of my social ecosystem because I'm no longer shackled to an office. What are your thoughts on that with respect to the void that an organization like Flow could potentially fill? Excellent question. I mean, yeah, right? Like if you if you think about, you know, historically you graduate college, you take your first job. If it's an office job, you're spending probably more than 40 hours a week in that office with other, you know, 22, 23 year olds. And then you go out and you get a beer after work together every couple of days or every Friday or whatever, you know, you try to hang out with your manager too, because you want them to like you and give you more money and promotions. So you have beers with that person too, you know, and then maybe eventually you get married and have a family and then you shift a lot of your social uh, or personal time towards that. But if you take away that experience, right, if you graduate college and you don't just go into this one job where you're at the office all the time, then we're social creatures. So yeah, you're right. Like you're going to fill that gap in other ways. 
And one of the interesting things about the college experience, which I'm totally acknowledging is not everyone's, um, is not part of everyone's life, but you know, one of the interesting things about the college experience, and I think part of the reason why the whole like co-living trend a few years ago was so hot is that it's a very unique time in someone's life where you are going to school and socializing with your peers. You're now basically an adult, or at least as far as, you know, you're not living with your parents. So you kind of make your your own decisions with what you do at your day. You are legally an adult and you're also usually living in very close proximity, like walking distance from everything you need and do. And so this sort of very compact social and living situation is very, very unique. And sure, if you live in a big city, in the dense city, some of that is, that's a similar circumstance from an environment perspective, but the social aspect is not quite there, right? Because you move into a building because you're renting an apartment there, but your neighbors aren't your peers, they're not your classmates. And so I do think that there is a reason why so many people say that college was like, you know, some of the best years of their life. And I think that social aspect has a big, a big part in that. And so I totally see the, the draw in wanting to capture some of that, right? Like having peers and community in close proximity to where you live, but hopefully perhaps in a more like age appropriate way than the, you know, college age experience. So, yeah, I mean, I could totally see people wanting to recreate some of that even post-college. So we do a lot of navel gazing here in Silicon Valley and I know you're a native of Silicon Valley. So I got to ask you this companies like famously Google kind of essentially got put on the map in the Valley because of the outrageous perks they offered the sushi chef and, you know, the pet washing and I mean, every, it goes on and on, right? Massages, um, laundry, dinner. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> right. All right. The, uh, the mobile dentist in the parking. I mean, just anything, right? It, so I recently, I think it was in the past couple of days, I heard a study, it might've been commissioned by like Indeed or like one of the hiring sites saying three quarters of employees that have, uh, Taking a new job, call it the great resignation or whatever you want to call it, but the you know, big, big trend in, in, in employee mobility. Say the number one factor that influenced their decision was flexible work location. So if you're an employer, let's say Google, for example, and you see that, you know, what employees really want, you know, if you want to attract and retain the best talent, you need to provide flexibility. You might have to shift the dollars going to perks from the sushi chef to things like, you know, uh, uh, subsidies for, you know, home office equipment or things like that. What are the implications? And let's say, you know, this pattern plays out in a decade for what, you know, do we go back to kind of fluorescent lights and, you know, bare walls in the office because all the, you know, all the perks have shifted to, you know, to, to, uh, to home or, you know, does the perks arm race continue unabated and both, the office as well as home life become, you know, just opulent in the Valley? Good question. I definitely think that 
like there is probably not going to be a right answer, like a one size fits all right answer. I think it'll highly depend on companies, industries, location, all that kind of stuff. Obviously, if you are the type of worker who wants to live in some other part of the country where, you know, that's where you want to live and that's important to you, then all the, you know, massages and laundry and fancy dinners at the office back at HQ don't matter to you, but you would like, you know, a stipend for a new home office thing. And you would like maybe to have your local gym membership comped by the company or have some monthly like food delivery stipend, whatever, like things that work for you. And so I do think that there will be um, I don't want to call it an arms race, but there will be a lot of competition in a similar way, but just like the parks will just be different because they won't be office centric. They'll be work from home centric. But at the same time, I also think that the, the pandemic conversation around remote work has conflated a lot of things. Um, I think distributing teams and not having everyone at HQ is one thing. But I also think that work from home, like literally working from your home is a separate thing entirely. Personally at Axios, our headquarters are in the DC area in Virginia to be specific. I've always been based in San Francisco. So I've always been you know, outside of HQ, not having that HQ experience. And at the same time, when I joined, you know, I was still living with roommates in downtown San Francisco. I didn't have space for a desk even in my apartment. And so I really wanted to go to an office. So they got us a co-working space. Eventually we even moved into a WeWork, which is very ironic, but you know, they, they immediately got us a co-working space, even when it was two of us in San Francisco. And that that's a different thing, right? Like working from home is not something that necessarily everyone wants, even if they want to be able to live in the city of their choice. And so I don't think that office comfort or office perks will entirely go away. I do think that a lot of people will want to go to an office and also companies have had, you know, satellite offices or all kinds of offices that are not HQ for the longest time. So this idea that people who are outside of HQ still have a workspace that they all congregate to and go and do their jobs is not a new idea. And companies have been managing this for a really long time. So I do think that companies will have to also account for that, right? Like you could have a small team that's out in a different city and they all want to come and work together. And they also want to do it in a comfortable manner. So while you're dispensing all your work from home stipends for monitors, you're also going to have to think about, well, that team should have nice office equipment in their office and we should maybe cater their Friday lunches or whatever it is that makes them happy. So it's, it's just going to become probably an even wider universe of perks for more companies that maybe didn't have to do that in the before times. Is there a generational component to this? You can imagine that over the next few years, a lot of Gen Z is going to replace a lot of the boomers that are going to be retiring. And I know that's that's a platitude. I mean, that's, that part's obvious. But what does it mean when a whole generation of workers 
graduate into a workplace and they've never worked from an office. Heck, we don't need some of them won't even have been able to go to college, you know, in person. And so they, they're not anchored at all by any kind of these, you know, or, or historical artifacts about how and where we work. You know, fast forward when it's Gen Z, but whatever comes after that and Gen Z has, you know, educated the next generation. Is this shift just going to spiral, you know, over the next decade or, you know, are, are we ever going to return to something that looks closer to pre-pandemic? I do think that, you know, we've had a lot of headlines about all the, the worker power um, since the pandemic began and how workers had, you know, got all this leverage and they could call the shots and employers just have to do whatever, you know, employees want to keep them around and to hire them. While a lot of that is true, I also think it's not evenly distributed. And I think you still have a lot of companies and industries where that balance of power is still pretty traditional and employers can, you know, just make people come to the office from nine to five. And so I don't think it's entirely gone and that it's going to be extinct like tomorrow like that sort of office and work culture I also think that as I mentioned earlier like there's a lot of stuff that's very universal to humans right like we're social beings even Gen Z wants to socialize and probably wants to socialize with their colleagues to a certain extent even if it's not spending 100 hours with them every week so I don't think that Gen Z is all of a sudden going to get the entire work universe to just, you know, everybody works from their bedrooms and that's how work is done forevermore. But I do think that, and millennials kind of were the first ones to really experience sort of the, a new kind of mental model of the economy and sort of what you can achieve. Um, And what do you get back from, you know, working really hard? And so I think, I think the difference in generations is a lot more around the edges of, do you really need to be at the desk at 9am and not leave before five? Like is what is really the point of that? You should be able to, you know, stay home one morning if you're waiting for some big delivery of furniture or you need to go run an errand. Like, I think the questioning is a lot more around the edges or, Hey, if I want to go visit my family and work from their home for a week, that should be allowed. And it's not something that my employer should be able to block for literally no reason other than wield power over me. So I think the generational stuff is a lot more, it's a lot less dramatic and more around the edges and questioning the things that just have no reason other than it's how it's been done. But yeah, I don't think that anytime soon it we're going to have this unrecognizable workplace culture. And maybe I'm entirely wrong. <laughs> and Gen Z is going to make everything 100% different. Look, you'll come back on the podcast and we'll we'll pick up the conversation and we'll see if we were right or not. I'm happy to talk about all the ways I got this wrong. <laughs> hey, Kia, this, uh, this sped by. We're bad out of time, but I'm not letting you off the hot seat without uh, 
answering one last question for me. This, this show is AI in the Future of Work. And I teased in the opener about this uh, new research from the Knight Foundation. So as a journalist, I want to know, if you kind of pull up your, your daily diary, look at the things that you do in the course of a day, what are the tasks that you do that will never be candidates for replacement via automation? And then maybe what are the, some of the things where you might be augmented as a journalist by AI and automation? I definitely think sort of the art of asking questions and interviewing is um, it really is an art, but also I'm, I don't mean that in like a frivolous sense. Like it's genuinely something that I don't foresee technology being able to do at the highest comparable levels anytime soon. Also the writing, right? Like we've seen a lot of, grammar software and a lot of um, even I think the AP has been using AI to write, you know, sports game summaries. But that's very, very like simple, straightforward stuff. I don't think technology is going to be able to write, you know, 10 page magazine features anytime soon or ever. That is such a complex thing. I mean, perfect writing is not even a real thing. It's so subjective that, you know, you could get software to write grammatically correct sentences and maybe even string a couple of them along, but to write an entire magazine feature, that is, that is a completely different undertaking. So I'm not worried about robots doing that anytime soon, but as I mentioned, you know, doing things like sports game summaries or, um, automating a lot of stuff that we do if we're working with data and we're trying to produce um, any kind of data projects, automating our own tools, you know, our, our CMS tools, all that kind of stuff, I'm sure is great places for, for software to come in and just make it faster and easier for us so we can focus on the interviewing and the writing. So that is Kia Kuklicheva. It's just fun. Thanks for coming by and hanging out. Thanks for having me. And if you're not already following Kia, go do it on Twitter. I'm Kia, like the car. Uh, are you still writing pro rata with Dan or, or how are you, how are you dividing up responsibilities there? I am. I write our Saturday edition and Dan still does Monday through Friday, except when he's on vacation or traveling or anything like that. And then I fill in. Well, there you go. And subscribe to pro rata, the great newsletter that, uh, Kia and Dan co-author. I so enjoyed this conversation and I, uh, would love to have you back sometime in the future. Does that sound? Me too. Happy to come back. All right. Well, that's a wrap for uh, this week on AI and the Future of Work. I'm your host, Dan Turchin. But uh, of course, we're back next week with another fascinating guest. <laughs> <laughs>